The Plumley Pod, episode 46. Prepare to lift the lid on all things education, not indoctrination. Your voice of reason for home education. The Plumley Pod. Hello and welcome to the Plumley Pod. I'm your host, Sarah Plumley, and today's special guest is one of my favourites. It's Joanna van der Leer, the co-author of The TV Delusion. I first met Joanna at the Open Mind Conference. I think it was in 2015, but don't quote me on that because I'm a bit rubbish with dates. But it was a very, very exciting conference about all kinds of weird and wonderful things. And she was giving a presentation along with her co-author, Simon Day, on their wonderful new book. The book was new at the time, The TV Delusion. And we got talking afterwards and the rest is history, as they say. However, we're not here to talk about The TV Delusion today because since then, Joanna has gone on a journey and is now into foraging. Disclaimer, first of all, I know nothing about this subject, so I'm learning. So please be kind to me if I ask stupid questions. That's the listeners. Because some of the listeners might know a little bit about this, certainly more than I will, because I know nothing at all. But before we get cracking, how did you get to here from being an author of the TV delusion? What got you into foraging? What was it? Yeah, thanks very much for that introduction, Sarah. That's very kind. What happened is I actually ended up being sick for my job in about December 2019. So actually just before the pandemic, if you like. And I was actually disabled, virtually kind of bedbound, coming on for like nine months, or actually almost a year really. And during that time, I kind of, when I could actually get up walking, so this was in the afternoons, I would go out into my local park, into the heath, and actually just kind of walk around, mainly to kind of recover from the chronic back pain really. And that was just a way of also kind of just getting out into nature. And it was like a bit of a relief as well from stress because my job was extremely stressful. And it was basically a stress-related back pain that I went off with. So when I was walking around after doing this for several months in an afternoon, for some reason, I just became more kind of enlightened by my surroundings, if you like, or more aware of my surroundings. And I started to look at things a bit differently including the plants and the trees and obviously animals as well when there were animals around, but mainly the plants. And I started to think, oh, what is that? And I kind of took a bit of a closer look at things and started taking pictures. And then I thought, well, why don't I have a look at it? Because I've got time. I had a bit of time on my hands. And effectively, I got off the hamster wheel of going into work, being stressed, going home, cooking dinner and doing all the chores and that kind of thing. So I basically started to like take samples of plants, take pictures and then go home and start actually looking into them and actually reading books, going on the internet, using apps, which I don't recommend, by the way, because plant apps quite often kind of throw you off in the wrong direction. But they're good as a starter when you really haven't got a clue what a plant is and, you know, you can then whittle it down a bit more. So I guess it was basically this awful kind of period of my life where I had this back pain and then I ended up losing my job as well and I worked unfortunately for the NHS at the time and it was extremely stressful with the whole pandemic but basically my body effectively saved me from it because I had this back pain so I couldn't actually go into work and yeah save me from actually having to whistleblow or to go along with it which I would have never done at all because I knew it was all a hoax. So I think that, and also I attended a herbal walk with a lovely lady I met called Deb, and she was really passionate about what she did. And just going on this, I think it was two-hour walk with a few friends of mine as well, really started to kind of get me interested in plants and fungi as well. So it's an amazing story from like being a busy city worker, rushing around, doing this, doing that, following orders, all the rest of it. I wonder how many times you've walked past those exact same plants in the park before you even began to realise what was all around you. Yeah, it seems like a massive journey from like inner city to almost countryside, but without having gone anywhere, with you know, remaining in the same place. Yeah, like your eyes were opened, that kind of, yeah, that is, it's almost a cliche now, but it's literally happened in your case. And I love that idea that your body, so intelligent, has saved you from that awful 
traumatic experience. The body's really, really smart, way smarter mm. than we are, I think. We better just stick in a disclaimer, hadn't we, before we both get into trouble. Yeah. Tell people what you say <laughs> so that they don't kill themselves and blame us. So you can give us the spiel before we go on. Yeah, yeah. No, so basically, whatever I'm going to say in the podcast, I just want to let your listeners know that they should always take it as opinion rather than fact. And also, my experience is probably likely to differ from a lot of other people that forage. So please, obviously, take what I say with a pinch of salt and don't kind of go around picking something that I might have mentioned that I picked and then eating it and then blame me, obviously, if you get poisoned or die or something. So <laughs> so, so most plants are perfectly safe, by the way, but there are obviously dangers. So you do have to be aware that it's not something that you can go and pick something and then start cooking it or eating it or feeding it to anyone else, or especially your kids, that kind of thing. But it's certainly not something that we should be scared of because I think we've been told from an early age that you shouldn't touch that, don't put this in your mouth, which is fair enough, don't put things in your mouth when you don't know what they are. But I think the dangers have really been kind of like driven home, if you like, in us from an early age. And actually the benefit of understanding and knowing how to identify plants and how to use them for your benefit is so empowering and that's unfortunately been kind of yeah left out and we don't even get taught well when I was at school I don't remember being taught any of this at all we've got a bit of basic kind of science about plants and photosynthesis and things like that but nothing about how actually we're surrounded by loads of plants and fungi which are a lot of them are medicinal as well as edibles and actually we can use those to our benefit and not have to rely on any external kind of authorities and big pharma for our medicines and shops for all our food because I think we've kind of been disempowered and effectively we're going around looking for convenience as well. I think a lot of people haven't got time which I can understand but it does kind of mean that you're limiting yourself to relying on these external bodies basically for your health and your well-being which I think is a danger. I think if we don't make time for ourselves and our bodies to be really healthy as well I think we get punished later I think we end up really sick and then you become very interested in what you're putting in your mouth and what's mm. medicinal and what helps you. I think sometimes it takes a really bad injury or a really bad illness to make you actually start to be more conscious about how you treat yourself what you will ingest and those sorts of things. It's funny you're just saying about not being taught about foraging in school. I definitely wasn't taught any of that. And the same sort of indoctrination as you receive, don't put anything in your mouth, don't do this, it's dangerous, you might die. I'm terrified. I've lived in the same house now for nearly nine years and we have a beautiful garden and in the garden I can smell mint. We have mint leaves and I know where they are and I know what they look like because I buy mint leaves from the vegetable ladies. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I buy them from the vegetable ladies because I'm too scared to pick them out of my own garden, chop right. them and throw them on the food. Stupid. Mm -hmm. This year, this year will be the year that I pick my own mint leaves from the garden. But I hope so. Yeah. Why are we so afraid? Like what? look at me like I'm approaching middle age and I'm too scared to go and pick the damn mint leaves out my own garden in case I kill myself. Where does that come from? Mm. Yeah, no, it's a good question. Again, I think it's from various different kind of avenues, I guess. I mean, obviously parents initially telling you not to touch things, not to put it in your mouth, which again is fair enough, especially if they don't know what the plants are or they don't know anything about foraging. It's easier just to say, just don't touch it and just don't go near it. And only eat the stuff that you find in the shops because that's safe or you know that's what people say or at least if you die we can then sue the shop <laughs> yeah exactly exactly so yeah so I think it's I think it's definitely a fear and also the fact that we've not been then told differently so basically once you've been told something and it's been instilled or kind of drummed into you then trying to unlearn that thing becomes quite difficult especially as you get older so I'm in my 40s and obviously I only just got into foraging a few years ago. So I think anyone can unlearn these kind of like ideas that's been instilled in them from an early age. But it can take a bit of time just to kind of like get over that initial fear. And I think the first things I would recommend are to first study the plants. So like I mentioned previously, I think, is just to kind of like go and look at the plants when you're out and about and maybe take some pictures 
have a look at various different resources. So you're not just relying on one website or something or one book. You're looking at various different books. So you can go to the library, obviously, and find books on foraging. Or online, there's free books. And I've got a, few, a couple that I bought as well. But initially, I think it's good to maybe concentrate on one plant, which you feel is common in your area and something that you can actually fairly easily identify as an edible food, edible plant. And most things like stinging nettles, most people know those and dandelions. I mean, obviously, mint has got a strong smell, so you can use all your senses as well. So the good thing about foraging, it's not just looking at something on a website or in a book. You're actually going out and actually experiencing it. You're smelling it, touching it. Is it soft or is it hairy? Is it smooth? What does it smell like? Is it strong, pungent? Does it actually look edible? Sometimes things kind of, you can just tell by looking at them that they just look nasty or they actually look quite calming. Just like you can use your instincts a little bit as well, but I wouldn't oh, actually. It's a bit like the husband's cooking. It's a bit like when Tim cooks. No, don't eat that. Don't eat that. Yeah. So use your instincts and then you'll be safe pretty much. But I mean, yeah. So, and also the, the number one rule of foraging that most people or pretty much anyone who does forage will tell you is never to eat anything that you haven't been able to identify yourself with 100% certainty or 100% accuracy. So basically not to trust someone else to just give you something and say this is inedible or go and have this because I've picked it. I think you need to actually make sure that you're happy that you've verified that plant is something that's edible. But the other thing about it is when I first started eating plants, which I hadn't eaten before, so I identified them and I was 100% certain of the identity of the plant. I would still only have a very small amount of the plant, so just like a sample, and then just do a little test. So you just take a little nibble and then wait and see what happens. So, so obviously, if it's really bad for you or it's going to cause a reaction, then you would know that and you haven't eaten a whole pile of it or a whole plate full of this plant, whatever it is. So... So I think that that's important because it kind of gives you a bit more confidence as well that you're starting off with a plant that's easy to identify, like a stinging nettle or dandelion or sorrel even, which has got strong kind of like lemony flavour, citrusy flavour, and is quite distinctive looking and things like that. And then you're basically then doing all the checks by looking at various different sources of information to make sure that it kind of actually matches up with the books and so on that you're looking at and maybe the plant apps if you use them and then basically going from there once you've worked out it's edible and you're 100% certain that you've identified it correctly just tasting a tiny amount and not feeding it to other people obviously as well I think so you have to be confident that what you've picked is actually safe and even then I would say when you do have guests around for dinner and things like that, to make sure that they're aware that you forage for food. Because I do actually have dinner parties, not dinner parties, but I have friends around, you know, we have a few friends around here and there occasionally. And I kind of would say to them, look, this salad has been foraged just to let you know. And I'll have a shop-bought salad. So just in case they're not confident in my foraging ability or whatever, I don't want them to feel they have to eat something which they might be nervous about because it's not really fair on other people. So I think basically it's something that you need to do for yourself initially at least and then just be cautious when you introduce the stuff you forage to maybe other people. But it's not something you should be scared about, I don't think. So it does take a bit of time to build up a knowledge and experience of what is edible, what you've got in your area and then just make sure that you've sampled small amounts of it really. It sounds to me that this is a really good training, a really good grounding for children. All of those words that you used back there to describe the plant, is it hairy? Does it smell strongly? Is it pungent? You use lots of fantastic language. I can see report writing, studying, field trips. There seems to be an awful lot in here that is extremely educational and not just fact learning, but actually learning how to second and third reference things, not just taking one source of evidence or one source of information, but multiple. You've kind of laid out there a really nice framework of a really good standard of education, whereby young people are learning, hang on a second, mm, that's what this app says, but mm, this book, mm, does that agree or does that disagree? Re really important for kind of decision-making skills and all kinds of fantastic stuff that you've just laid out mm -hmm. there for us. 
brilliant. Yeah. No, I think it's good for children to learn how to analyse and synthesise and the scientific method as well. And just having a methodical, detailed approach to things because you have to be cautious, like I said, because it's something new. You can teach your child or children basically how to safely collect plants in a kind of like responsible way where they're doing it in a very methodical and detailed kind of way and they don't have to eat. So the thing is, I think a lot of people think foraging, oh, I need to eat the plant. I can't go out and forage and then come home without anything. And actually, I went out and I did that quite often. I'd go out and I wouldn't come back with any plants or if I did, they would just be little samples that I would be doing a bit of research on or smelling it or feeling it. Like I said, it's all about the senses. So it is developing senses, even when you're an adult. I mean, some of these things I feel have actually really increased my capacity to smell, for instance, like when I go foraging now, I often smell plants before I actually see them. And that's because of the way that I've been, the approach I've taken, I guess, and also because once you're exposed to things and you start to become more aware of them, then you start to notice them in different ways, not just in one unidimensional way, like just seeing it, you sense it, like an instinct you get from it as well. So it's quite interesting. What was the first plant that you honed in on? What was it that you went looking for or researched? Can you describe a little bit like what you actually did when you decided to go after something? Yeah, I mean, so actually one of the first ones I actually got was cleavers. So it's something that I'd never actually noticed before, but they're actually very common. It's kind of a weed, really. Sticky, kind of tall plant that grows over a metre tall. It starts to kind of grow... I guess like early in the year and pretty much throughout the year, but the summer months it becomes a bit more stringy and it's a sticky plant. I think when you, I don't know if you, when you were kids, you used to like pick certain plants and throw them at, on the back of someone. It's a plant where you could like, pick it up and it will stick to pretty much anything. It's like Velcro. Anyway, so it's basically a plant I looked at and I thought, that's strange. I've never actually noticed this plant before. I wonder what it what it is so like things like nettles and dandelions I knew what they were so I suppose that didn't stick out to me or something that I hadn't really noticed before but it was so abundant so in the park that I live near it just seemed to be everywhere and also the canal that I walk along the canal as well and anyway this plant seemed to be everywhere so I thought I'd look into it and it turned out to be something that's really kind of like a good plant for cleansing your body for detoxing and it's like a spring tonic and you can use it for basically cleaning your lymphatic system effectively and it's very easy to use so I think in most people's gardens they'll have these as well and they're called cleavers and the Latin name is Gallium apparin. I'm not sure if I pronounced that correctly but it's basically a plant where it will help cleanse your lymphatic system and also your skin because when your lymphatic system works properly that helps with your body kind of removing all sorts of things and just helps your skin basically and it actually it's from the same family as the coffee plant as well so you can actually make like a slightly kind of less caffeine related not related but kind of coffee from this plant as well so out of the seeds so it actually is useful throughout the year for various things but anyway so what I made is like a cold infusion so you just pick the plant wash it thoroughly and then you put it in some decent water, so distilled water. And then the next day, you can drink it. And it tastes kind of like cucumber water. I've actually got some at the moment that I'm drinking right now, actually. So. <laughs> Sounds like something I need. I'm very interested in the lymphatics because I've had some neurolymphatic difficulties, migraines and so on and so forth. So that sounds like something I definitely need to be identifying and it probably does grow in my garden and I've never even noticed it. I'm going to have to go and look for that one. What mm. do you suggest a numpty like me does about that? So I've got the name of it. Do I go and get pictures and then take them with me into the garden? What would be a smart thing to do? Yeah, I mean, I, was, I would say look up cleavers just online initially and have a look at various different websites. Make sure, because sometimes obviously you get the wrong image. That's happened a lot actually when I've looked online. I mean, ideally having a good book I've actually got a really good book called Hedgerow Medicine. I mean, I can give you the details of it if you want to. Yeah, we'll stick it in the description. Thank you. Yeah, yeah certainly. And 
yeah, so once I started getting interested in foraging and after looking online a bit and I realised that actually sometimes it can be misleading or it's not always clear what something is, I decided I'd get a good book and I did a bit of research into what books were good. Well, the few books I have got, I find very useful and I kind of keep referring to them again and again because they've basically got many medicinal plants that you can find throughout the year, basically. So different seasons, you get different plants. But but yeah, so that, I would say cleavers is renowned for being a very safe plant. But again, it's something that I'd say that your listeners should obviously look into. I think some people do get a reaction, like a skin reaction when they pick it because it's kind of sticky and it's got like little hairs, basically. So yeah, some people have like a kind of, yeah, just reaction from picking the plant. But if you do have a reaction from picking a plant, then I would be cautious, obviously, eating it. Because you can eat it as well. So it's a plant that in the early spring is a good edible. Well, not a good edible, but it's like a salad green, basically. So before it gets really tough and particularly sticky, it's actually quite tender. And you can chop it up and use it just as a salad item as well. So, And then when it flowers it's not so good to use. So actually a lot of plants, so again, it's something that if you look into like one particular plant and the seasons and what happens or how it kind of like develops over the year, how it grows and things, you can start to build up a kind of, what's the word, like a, not an image, but kind of an idea of what when to pick the plant, what time of year is a good time and also when is not a good time. So certain things, once they've flowered, they become either less medicinal or more irritant so for instance stinging nettles once they flowered they're not good for eating really because they become a bit of an irritant to the bladder so they contain like these little crystals basically in the plant after they flower so all this information i'm telling you is is basically from books and things i've read so obviously i can't say for sure that's actually correct but all i'd say is i'm cautious about eating anything that may actually cause any kind of irritation. So I just prefer not to do that. I grabbed an old calendar and last year and this year so far, I've been noting down what I can recognise in the garden that grows naturally around me to kind of give me like a... So when I approach the next calendar year, I can open up and see what I should be looking for at which times of the year to pick this or that. Mm-hmm. So although I haven't done very much, I have been keeping a, an eye on what grows when here with a view to maybe picking and eating it or doing something else with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's something that's I... That's a really good idea. Like organising myself sort of annually. But I think that's probably what they used to do in the olden days when they actually knew stuff. You'd eat certain things at certain times of the year. And it's right that certain plants grow in the seasons where we get coughs and colds, those plants that help with coughs and colds happen to just grow during the season or be available or best available when you are poorly, right? Mm-hmm. There's some kind of symbiosis, isn't there, whereby humans and plants, we have a, whether we are aware of it or not, we have some kind of important relationship. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. no, I agree. I think a lot of plants, like you said, do grow at certain times of the year when we actually most need them. One example is purple dead nettle, which around here has been it's very abundant at the moment and it happens to be good for like asthma and hay fever symptoms. So this is the time of year where people get hay fever and it's actually a really good soothing kind of gentle herb basically and it's from the mint family. So it's not actually a nettle as such but it's from the mint family. So it's certainly something you can use in salads and also make tinctures and I've even made salves are like a instead of using shop-bought uh, products I now make stuff for my skin and my lips and my body based on my whole body my face everything which has saved me a fair bit of money and and it's much better because it's not got any petroleum and other chemicals harsh chemicals and stuff and I've got really sensitive skin and this purple dead nettle which I happen to use in a salve along with comfrey is very good for sensitive skin actually and good for kind of itchiness as well so if you've got like itchy skin or eczema or hives that kind of thing or insect bites even it's kind of has an antihistamine type of effect so and it's abundant at the moment in the UK I'm not sure about in France but again it's something that you might not even see unless you're really looking so you have to go out and actually if you looked for purple dead nettle online or something and you saw a picture 
and then you went out, I bet you would see it. So it's if once you're aware of something, then you start seeing it everywhere. That's kind of what happened to me. So once I started developing an interest, the more I kind of thought, okay, what's that plant? And then I looked into that and then I started seeing it everywhere. And then the next plant I kind of started looking into, the same thing happened. So it's basically once you start on this kind of journey, if you like, it's almost not never ending. That sounds like a negative thing, but it's kind of like an ongoing learning and you feel like it's, I still feel like a novice. Well, I haven't really, I've only been doing this for a couple of years really, but I feel like I'm a novice because the more you know, the more you realise there is to know kind of thing. But in a good way, I don't feel like that's stopping me and I feel actually really quite passionate about it. I'm just going out and actually it makes things way more interesting as well when you can start to think differently about things like when you have an illness or you're feeling like oh what could I do about this burn on my hand or whatever you start to actually think differently about things rather than going okay I'm going to go down the shop and buy this product and apply it or eat this thing because I've been told that's good you actually start taking responsibility for your own health and your well-being and it's actually really rewarding and empowering to to do that or well, I find it is anyway so because you just feel much better about what you're putting in your body because you know what it is you know what you're eating and it's not a load of chemicals and yeah, you're in charge of it aren't you you're, you're dictating yeah you and only you are dictating what goes in or on your body as it should be right the treasure hunt aspect of it appeals to me as well mm. I quite like the idea of going out searching for something that I want or need that I have a purpose for I noticed that there's a reasonable foraging culture here in rural southwest France. I see people, particularly during mushroom season, tend to get groups of people out. But all through the year, there are some really hardcore foragers. I wouldn't say there are lots, but I've noticed it. And I probably noticed it because when I used to live in the UK, I didn't notice it. But do you see people out doing this? Or are you the only one? What's happening yeah, where you are? Yeah, I mean, it's strange, actually, because... I don't really see people. I mean, I've only met one person in the last two or three years that wasn't actually foraging, but he said he forages. So, but interestingly, I get approached nearly every time I go out foraging by people who are curious to know what I'm picking. So they actually, it's almost like they have a drive or an instinct within them to come up to me and ask me what I'm doing, which is really, I find that fascinating because it's a stranger and then once you get to talk to them, they ask you more questions and you can kind of basically say what you're doing and what you're going to use it for. And there's a real interest. People are really keen to know a bit more and more about it. So one guy I spoke to for 20 minutes and I didn't even know where the time went kind of thing. So at the end of it, it started raining and I was like, I haven't even picked my wild garlic, which is what I was trying to pick at the time. And I've just been speaking to this guy about it. But anyway, it's a really what I find is really good is that you can actually kind of start to talk about things with people that you wouldn't have been able to speak about had you not kind of like had a way in with talking about foraging. So things as diverse as like 5G or chemtrails or convid and they're people you've just met and actually they have this kind of trust, I think, because they see you picking plants and they think, okay, you must know what you're doing. You must be either an expert or you're some kind of authority or something I mean I'm just guessing what they're actually thinking because obviously I don't know but it's interesting that they come up to you and you can speak to them and they actually really take a keen interest in what you're saying and it means that you can subtly add or not necessarily subtly but you can kind of speak about other things and I've never had any aggression or anyone kind of get abusive or just walk away or anything like that they've always been interested to listen to my point of view so I thought it'd be good for your listeners to know that because even if they go out and just look at some plants and kind of kneel down maybe to look at the plants, people are going to come up to them. So if you're, say, in a new city or town on your own or something and you want to meet some people or make some new friends or something, all you need to do is go to your local park or your heath or some kind of common land, obviously not private land unless you know the people, but and just look as if you're foraging, even if you're not, and then you'll get to speak to people and it's amazing what you get to talk about. So I've actually made quite a few contacts and a few of them yeah, have bought the salve I made as well, which is interesting. So I, I was actually foraging for some plants to make some salve and it was only for myself initially, but 
since I started making it, I've had a lot of demand from people to make more of it. So then I could, and I've actually sold it. Initially, I was saying, oh, no, you can have it for free and stuff. But people are really keen yeah, to basically to buy organic and like homemade products and that sometimes they don't have the time, you know, to make it themselves and stuff. So I'm sensing a real shift. I don't know about you. You'll probably know more about this than me, but I'm sensing certainly even in my own, just in my own sphere of friends and influence that people are not wanting to buy pharmaceutical products. I don't want your sunscreen. I don't want your moisturizer. I want something that's been made by the white witch down the road because I trust her more than I trust you. Do you know why? Because I see her picking healthy green things out of the hedgerows and she hasn't killed herself yet. And that's kind of my, since COVID in particular, I kind of feel staunchly more against pharma than ever. I was always very unhappy with pharma. And you know that I've had many conversations with Simon about asthma Mm. and things like that because of what happened to me when I was younger. I've basically been experimented on by pharma since quite a young age, and I'm not very happy about it. So I've always had a bit of a beef with them anyway. But because of what's happened over the last three years, I have almost nothing now from pharma in my house. We're progressively getting rid of everything. I'm buying soap off my hairdresser, <laughs> moisturizer and deodorant from her also because that's the kind of things that she's making. I've really had it. And is this just me or, or are you seeing other people changing where they buy their, what do you call them, beauty products or yeah, it's co- not cosmetics? And, yeah, cosmetics. Yeah. There we go. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have seen like a an interest because, as I said, I was only making these salves and, you know, like lip balm and things and toothpaste. And I made some other bits and pieces. I've made syrups and tinctures and various tonics and things like that and people are really keen to have some or to get in on it basically and I mean normally I kind of say oh you can make it yourself something that's easy to make it's it takes a bit of time to be fair because you have to dry quite a lot of things to make a sound for instance so it doesn't go off but once you've actually established that you've got the right plant you've got somewhere to dry it it's very easy to then make it and you can make it in like batches and stuff. And it saves so much money to do it yourself. But if people don't have the time and they're working full time, and I'm not working full time, I have got some work, but it's I'm still fitting in a lot of foraging between the work. And I take a few people out foraging. I haven't done it recently, but I've done a few little trips and things. And basically, yeah, people are very interested in using especially organic stuff and homemade products with as few ingredients as possible because it's unnecessary to have all these different chemicals and stuff and preservatives when you're using kind of natural ingredients that are good enough on their own and you don't need to add a load of rubbish to it basically so do you think that's a direct consequence of farmers behavior during the convid scandemic yeah yeah. no i think people have a mistrust now for allopathic medicine and i think that's probably created a bit of a void really as well. So people are kind of thinking, where do I go now? Because I don't want to go and take this medication. I don't really want to go to the doctor even because I might be given something which isn't going to work for me or it's got a load of side effects, which most medications have side effects. And at best, they might be a placebo. So you're not going to really benefit by having something that's effectively toxic in your body or on your body if it's like a cream or something. So I think people are starting to think, well, what do I do now? Or how do I fill that gap that I used to use these products, especially with the pandemic having happened and with the mistrust with vaccines and things like that. So, so yeah, I think foraging is definitely not just for food, but for medicinal as well. So there's so many plants that you can eat as a food, but also happen to be medicinal. And there are medicinal plants that you could eat, but they're also good for for making tinctures and or using in teas so I use I make I dry herbs and stuff and flowers and use them in teas because they're medicinal and good for things like reducing anxiety good for coughs and colds like rosehip syrup is an easy thing to so rose hips are very easy to forage and very easy to identify and you can make your own syrup and it's high in vitamin c it's very good for like coughs and colds sore throats that kind of thing I made a tincture out of something called Gelder Rose, which is also called Cramp Bark. And again, I found that in my local park, the plant. Well, it's like actually a shrub. 
And I actually made a tincture which is good for muscle spasms and cramps. So rather than taking ibuprofen or using drugs which are nasty and affect your stomach and stuff, I'd basically just take five mils of that that I've made and then some water. And it actually works for all sorts of cramps. And I found out it works for migraines as well. So so I've been using it for that. And yeah, so the other things you can use are, I don't know if you've heard of birch polypore. It's basically like a bracket fungus. It grows from birch trees, obviously. And there's other things like turkey tail. So it's basically lots of fungi that are medicinal and like are used in Chinese medicine. But we just don't use them here or very few people tend to like even consider them as something to use. But you can make tinctures out of many different things. Again, I would say always check what you're doing and make sure you're 100% sure of identifying stuff. But there are many different options when you're foraging. It's not just for food. It's very diverse. And things like comfrey, for instance, are, although it's not particularly good to eat, and people say it's not safe to eat. It's something you can use as a poultice, like a on a wound, for instance, not a deep wound, but kind of a wound which will help heal wounds. And it also helps heal bones as well. So, so there's different options. Basically, I think it will minimise your visit to the GP if you get a basic understanding of even just a few plants that are medicinal that you can use like as prophylactic kind of for prophylactic purposes. But also, if you're suffering with certain ailments or anxiety or anything like that, there's so many different plants and herbs that are available that are actually very easy to identify and that you can start to develop a knowledge how to use them and then become more confident. And then you just feel like, actually, I don't need to go to the doctor now because I've got my own methods and my own ways of dealing with this. I can use natural remedies and I don't need to go to the hospital because I can actually prevent illness with using a lot of these plants which will help me stay healthy. So things like stinging nettles are really high in vitamins and minerals and there's so many plants these days that you buy in the shops or food stuff which is really depleted. Intensive farming and stuff these days, you don't really get very much in terms of nutrition from these plants. And basically, I think just eating something that's not been intensively farmed is the way to go, really. Well, I've not been to a doctor or a hospital or any medical professional now for oh, nine or ten years. Nine or ten years. I have a physiotherapist, but he's kind of alt. He's not necessarily a chartered whatever they have. He's not an NHS type creature. So... I've been doggedly away from it. And most of that time, up until the scandemic, I'd probably gone, I'd say about seven years with nothing at all. And I was super healthy, supremely healthy, the healthiest I've ever been in my life. I know it's only a survey of one, but I've never been so well since I stopped going to the doctors. Mm-hmm. And I can't fully explain that, but I can just report that that is what has happened. It's not always easy, certainly since the scandemic. I've had some health challenges but I've doggedly not gone to the doctor or to pharma or the pharmacist or the chemist or anything like that. Not interested. Thank you very much. You've had your chances. You've blown it with me. I'm much more interested in these kinds of conversations and all of the wonderful things that you learn. Would you say that the actual process of foraging itself has had like a stress relief benefit for you? Yeah, definitely. I mean, when I first got into it, actually, I was suffering not just from chronic back pain, but from anxiety. So I was actually getting really anxious like when I could get out of bed, which was like in the afternoons, basically, because I was bed bound for most of the day. I would feel claustrophobic and especially during the whole convid kind of era, if you like, or period. I think that made it worse because I'd go out and I'd see lots of people wearing muzzles and I'd actually find trying to go to a shop and just buy some groceries, I would just get extremely anxious and my heart would be beating like rapidly. I would basically think, and I'd be sweating. And I just want to get back home. I just want to get away, basically. But so what I did is I thought, right, I need to get out, though. I can't just stay in the house because I'm virtually there all the time anyway. So just being somewhere like in a park or on the heath, okay, there were still people wearing muzzles, but there weren't actually so many. There were more people not doing that. 
and there were actually just less people generally than at the shops. So I actually felt it was something that really reduced my anxiety and just kind of focusing on what my surroundings more and seeing them differently, I think also just helped me get out of my head a bit and started to relieve my anxiety quite a lot. So I think it has yeah multiple purposes, basically, or benefits to me anyway. And even now, when I feel a bit stressed or anxious about something, one of the first things I do, apart from maybe do a meditation or something, which, to be honest, I find it takes a lot of effort. I get a bit bored with it. I tend to just go out. <laughs> I'm no good at those either. <laughs> it doesn't yeah, work for me either. I lose my patience sometimes or kind of like I just get a bit bored. I spent too long at drama school, so I'm too cynical. Like I can't do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I do. I mean, I do some, might listen to something, but generally speaking, I think just being out in nature and just looking at plants and stuff, you know, so I just see new things all the time is a way of relieving stress for me, definitely. And I think it would for a lot of people because your focus is on your surroundings. So if you're just walking out in the park in nature, I think that's definitely a stress reliever anyway. But I think this is like an extra level where you're basically, your senses are focused on something and you're not focusing on your worries or the stresses or whatever it is that's making you anxious. You're basically using your whole being, if you like. It's kind of taken over by looking at these plants, identifying them and basically kind of absorbing yourself in just the identification and the smelling, feeling the plants, all sorts of things. I think that in itself is a really good way of just relieving any anxiety or stress for me anyway. And um, I think it's also one method that is used for people with anxiety in terms of using your senses. I've heard this before where people say, actually, in order to reduce anxiety, what you need to do is focus on one thing that looks a certain way or something that you've never seen before, focus on the sounds you hear, etc. So, so I think it is a way of actually relieving stress. So it's kind of, I can understand why foraging has the same kind of effect, basically, as what you're, I think, told to do if you go to these kind of clinicians, I guess, who deal with stress and stuff. How ironic, because you're taking control of your body and your health and what goes on and in your body. It seems to me that that in itself is making you more confident, it's relieving anxiety because you feel more in control of your future and your health and well-being. And yet these creatures that give you advice from the National Homicide Service, oh sorry, National Health Service. <laughs> yeah. Oh, maybe I was right the first time. Anyway, these creatures who are giving you the advice are telling you exactly what you've already learned through the very process. And it's actually being in charge of it yourself is perhaps an enormous component of the stress relief as well as the benefits of being outside in nature. What I'm hearing from you is that it's a real sense of having sovereignty. You are in control of your health and what happens to you. It's lovely. It's something yeah, I definitely yeah. need to get stuck into. Yeah. And I think the waiting list these days for people with depression, anxiety or stress <sighs> or whatever are pretty big because I did go on a waiting list when I had bad anxiety to see a counsellor or, you know, speak to one. And I'm still waiting. And that's like two and a half years, three years or something. It's outrageous, isn't it? You pay your taxes for that. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Well, also, I always say to people like us as well that how are we going to get any benefit out of talking to a normie counsellor? What are the chances of having a counsellor that is remotely aware of things like the World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab, Bill Gates, the polio mm. scam, the convid scam? A lot of the things that stress us people are things that are denied all over the world by politicians, the journaliers, prostitutes, if you prefer. A lot of the things, mm. certainly me, there's no point in me going to speak to a counsellor. How are they going to help me? Yeah, We don't yeah. even live in the same world. We're not, <laughs> I just don't see how that talking therapy, I mean, I think talking therapy would probably be really good because I like talking, who doesn't? But, <laughs> but I don't see how anybody that's, you know, formally trained is going to help me at all, at all, at all, at all, because they'll just tell me that, oh, you're paranoid and, you know, 9-11 was exactly how the government said it was, even though that's provably false. As a mathematician and a partway physicist, it's easy to prove that what we were told happened did not happen. 
these are the things that make me angry. These are the things that give me angst. I'm angry that I'm being lied to all the time. And I'm even more angry that people believe it blindly without doing their own homework. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure a counselling could help me at all if I, if I needed if to. If anything, it sounds like it was, it's going to make you more anxious from the sounds of it. <laughs> it's going to make me more cross. I know that. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's going to end in a row, isn't it? Like, I don't <laughs> see that going well at all. No, uh, no. I think best to avoid it and just go out foraging. So you should tell that warning story though about the crazy lady uh, who um, <laughs> yeah. I think was Transylvania, was that the you oh, better yeah, yeah, tell yeah. people about that before we end up, you know, somebody killing themselves. <laughs> Let's have that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. As I said, when I go out foraging, I get approached all the time, basically, people curious to know what I'm picking and stuff. About a year ago, this lovely lady actually came up to me and stopped and asked me what I was what was I picking. And so I turned around and I picked one of the leaves. It was actually garlic mustard, a plant that's really a nice edible salads and pestos and things like that. And anyway, I bruised the leaves because it smells strong when you kind of tear the leaves or bruise them. And I basically gave, I not gave it to her, but I kind of like held it towards her for her to smell. So what she did is she actually just took it straight from me and put it straight in her mouth and started eating it. So although I know it's, an edible and it's not likely to harm someone who eats it it still shocked me because I thought wow she doesn't even know me she's just seen me picking something and I could have given her anything obviously I wasn't going to try and kill her but it was quite astounding actually what she did but anyway so she kind of nibbled it and ate it and she seemed quite happy which was fine but obviously like I think I mentioned before the number one rule of foraging is to never eat anything unless you're 100% sure you've accurately identified it yourself and it's actually an edible plant, and then you've tested it, all this kind of stuff. So it did actually kind of bemuse me rather when she just put it straight in her mouth. And I did actually think a bit later after this happened that this is all too common, this kind of behaviour, that when a perceived authority basically dishes out something, that many just will swallow it without question. And in this case, that's exactly what happened. (laughs) Anyway, so she actually said, oh, look, I've I found some wild garlic, you know, around the other side of the park. Do you want me to show you? So I kind of said, oh, that would be good because I was picking this garlic mustard for a salad and I thought it would make a really good addition to my salad. So so I followed her. We had a bit of a chat. And on the way, she was she pointed out this beautiful plant which had bright, shiny yellow flowers. And I had again, it's a plant I hadn't even noticed before, but it seemed to be everywhere. So after she showed me this plant, I was started to see it every time I went out after that. Anyway, she said, oh, my grandmother in Transylvania would make a soup out of this plant. And she called the plant Little Herb. So I said, is that, that can't be the name. And she goes, oh, I don't know what it's called, but that's what we used to call it in Transylvania. And anyway, so she said, oh, this is what my grandmother would make. So she picked a few leaves and she nibbled on one of them and she gave me the other leaf. And I basically kind of looked at it a bit suspiciously and it didn't look very appetizing. So I didn't put it in my mouth, but I did smell it to show willing. And then she kind of looked at me and gave me a bit of a curious look and maybe a bit disappointed. And I said apologetically, oh, I'm sorry, I never eat anything that I haven't first identified, you know, myself. And I'm sure about, you know, that I've accurately identified it. So, so I said, oh, look, I'm really sorry, but I'm not going to eat it. And she did look really disappointed, but I kind of thought, well, maybe that she's learned a bit of a lesson from that because she's got my perspective, which is not to just bung it straight in your mouth. Anyway, I went home and actually looked up this plant, again, looking at various resources and stuff. And it turned out to be called a plant called Lesser Celandine, which is a lovely kind of like early spring flowering plant. But it's actually mildly toxic when eaten raw. And it can cause stomach upset. So uh, although generally speaking, it would you, it would take a few leaves or quite a few leaves to give you that stomach problem. But I thought, oh, that's good. I didn't eat it because I have got a sensitive stomach and I'm just generally sensitive. So it's best not to eat something you don't know anyway what it is. But actually, if you cook it, it's fine. So I can see how her Transylvanian grandmother w- would get away with cooking it without any problems and eating it and obviously not dying and stuff. But yeah, you have to be a bit cautious because obviously that some plants are edible when they're cooked, but not when they're raw. And it was in it. So that was a learning experience as well about that plant could be used 
anyway, and it's from the generally toxic buttercup family as well, which, again, this is just from reading. So whether it is actually toxic, I haven't actually tried to eat it, to be fair, so I don't know. And I don't trust it, people's insight sometimes. So I've heard people have used buttercup for arthritis and things, but I just steer clear of anything I'm not 100% sure of anyway. But anyway, this plant contains like small amounts of a compound which can be hepatoxic, which kind of cause liver damage if you eat too much of it. So what is interesting though is a lot of plants actually have defences that are against herbivores, so against animals eating them. And it's also another thing to look into. So anyone who gets into foraging, it's interesting to kind of look at what are the plant defences and are those something that can affect me or, you know, are they toxic to humans or a danger to me? A lot of them are not toxic at all. So things like wild garlic and another plant called free-cornered leek or garlic mustard actually is another one as well, taste quite pungent, like garlicky and mustardy horseradishy taste. And a lot of plant, sorry, a lot of animals don't like that taste. And therefore that's a plant defence against the plant being eaten effectively, but humans like that. So as stingy nettles obviously have to sting, so that's a defence against things eating it. So it's interesting. I just found it quite interesting to kind of think about each plant and how they defend themselves from being eaten. I scored the lady. I gave her 10 out of 10 for compliance when she <laughs> ate that thing that you wanted her to smell. And I gave her 1 out of 10 for critical thinking. Oh, <laughs> she was a lovely lady though. So I, I didn't also give the name just in case she's listening. But, um, <laughs> but she'll probably know who she is if she does listen. But yeah, anyway, the other thing about that plant actually, the interesting thing is it has got medicinal properties. And another name for it is pile wart because it has roots that look remarkably, so I'm told, like hemorrhoids. And historically, apparently, these roots have been used to treat piles. So you basically cook them and they're like little potatoes. And apparently, they're good for hemorrhoids. So that's interesting. I've never eaten them, so I don't know. But I just thought it was quite interesting to note that actually, there's all different parts of a plant. You can, so basically, the bit of the plant you can see isn't necessarily just the only part you can use, if you like. So the root might be beneficial. So things like like horseradish, obviously, it's a root from the plant, but you can also eat the leaves, apparently, as well. And the things like burdock, as well, which has a taproot, and that's really medicinal. And dock, as well, they have good medicinal roots. It sounds like dandelion and burdock, something I yeah. used to love to drink when I was younger. Yeah. Well, these days... If you buy dandelion and burdock, it's probably going to be artificial. No, I was, I was going to wait for you to make it for me. I'm not going to buy it. I'm not going to buy it from a shop. Someone might put chemicals in it. No, no, no. Yeah, exactly. I think it's mostly chemicals nowadays. But but yeah, yeah definitely make it yourself or maybe I'll make it for you. I would so, love uh, it. I've been craving it. It's very strange when you live abroad and the culture is not very different. You don't notice things that you miss, really. But occasionally you just get something in your head that you really, really want that you can't have or can't source mm. very easily. And mm-hmm. for me at the moment, it's all about dandelion and burdock. And if Tim's listening, his is beef and ale pie. <laughs> right. <laughs> you can't really forage that, can you? No, well, but I, I not, not probably could learn to make one. I'm good at chicken, bacon and leek pie, but I haven't done the steak and ale thing. I'm not, yeah, I'm not sure about that. I'm Maybe slow cooking. Slow cooking is yeah. probably the way to go, I'd say. Sounds like it. Sounds, nice and Sounds tender. like it. I have one question that I've been dying to ask you, and I must ask you before I let yeah, you go. Sure. Why are all these things, this is fascinating, this whole subject from the very beginning where you were telling me about all of the use of the different senses and the different adjectives you use to describe plants. All of this stuff is wonderful for children for their use and understanding of languages, science, very, very interesting, cooking, medicine. I just, why is this stuff not being taught in schools, do you think? Uh, yeah, it's a very good question. I mean, again, I might be a bit sceptical, but I think it could be because being your own authority in something is a no-no, as in when you're taught things at school, it's kind of taught, this is how it is, this is who you should look up to, this is what you should know. And so it's not something that is a subject, I think, that people really want people, kids to get into, or maybe not people, but you know, school teachers, obviously, have, they haven't got much say, I guess, in, in what gets taught. And there's limited time, I guess, to be teaching kids 
in these kind of subjects. But I think it's so important because the, it's a good way of introducing kids to the idea of basically being their own authority, using kind of like skills and critical thinking and scientific method, and also just being more kind of wary about what people tell them and not just trusting authority, which I think is probably the key thing, I guess. So in schools, you're kind of told you must trust authority and you just be part of this kind of like a small cog in a wheel. Is that the right term? I don't know. But yeah, so basically, you're not really empowered to go out into the world and be able to look after yourself and be independent. You're kind of being dependent on authority figures and big pharma and basically external kind of things in order to get by in life. And then when those things turn out to obviously not be in your best interests, it becomes difficult to then know where to go, especially if you haven't been taught as a child that you could actually get confidence and go out and actually identify these plants and then use them and think about things differently in that way and not just think, oh, I need to earn money to then go and buy fake food from a shop type of thing. I think it's, it, yeah, it's a shame really because there are so many different skills that kids could learn from going out foraging. And as I said, it's not just about going out, picking something and eating it. It's about kind of using your senses, being detailed, being cautious, understanding about responsibility. Keeping records. Yeah, responsibility, kind of like looking at various sources of information. And it's totally cross-curricular because you've got science there, languages. Look at the Latin, all of the Latin names mm. for these plants. It's so rich from an educative perspective. It's a disgrace that this stuff isn't isn't taught. And I, I cut you mm. spot on, I think, that, you know, truth comes from authority. That's basically the lesson of school. Children are indoctrinated to believe that truth comes from authority. Well, actually, you can be your own authority, children, if you're diligent and hardworking and take time to learn skills and use tools and use your brain you can be in charge of your own life and not be dependent upon the state, which is, of course, in my opinion, exactly what the state doesn't want. That's why the schooling system doesn't allow these things. And it's also, I can't let it pass, I have to say that plants are the origins of medicine. That's where medicine mm. began. It's not the yeah. offshoots of the byproducts of oil or whatever that are supposed to be medicines. That wasn't the original medicine. Thousands of years of medicine was wiped out by the Rockefellers, if my reading is correct, when they wanted to impose their ideas on medicine on the world. I think it's a terrible, terrible loss. We can't have children knowing about real medicine or where medicine originated, can we? No, so, so I think they're just disconnected, actually, from reality and what's actually important. And actually, I forgot to mention a bit earlier that just also knowing a little bit about poisonous plants is also very important, obviously. So poisonous lookalikes. So when you do go out, there are plants that have similarities to some poisonous plants. So it's good to also be kind of cross-referencing things and also looking at how to identify these poisonous plants as well, because that's very empowering. Because I was thinking the other day that, you know, if obviously food prices are going up and food shortages and so on. And, you know, what if basically all the shops shut tomorrow and we're told, you know, we can't get anything or we just have nowhere to find or buy food, then it's really important just to be able to know that you could go out into your you know, local area. You don't even need lots of parks and stuff, hedgerows along quiet roads, ideally, and small areas that are kind of like just common land or common ground is all that's really necessary to find a lot of these plants that are also kind of deemed as to be weeds. And I think that's that term, people go, oh, weeds, let's just dig them up and throw them away. And actually, a lot of these so-called weeds are really good medicinal plants. And again, that's an, another way of kind of telling us, look, you don't need to go out and look for your own plants and stuff or eat for your own food and medicine. Stay here and take all our stuff that we're producing and kind of manipulating all these natural things into like allopathic medicines and so on so it's kind of there's so many different things that they've done to manipulate like the way we think about nature and plants and to scare us but actually there's ways of just kind of empowering yourself to go okay if tomorrow all the shops shut I can go out and actually I'll be okay because I've got these plants I could forage to make 
this out of you can make so many things like curries i've made nettle pakoras i've made pestos i've made cakes out of things of teas i've made syrups i've made infusions well salves and stuff but there's lots of different plants you can use in cooking <clears throat> that basically yeah if you were really stuck for food you wouldn't die basically and there's lots of roots as well obviously which are very nutritious and you can get proteins and things that you know and carbohydrates obviously that you'd need so you could survive and i think knowing that is really empowering so i think knowing that even if you know, everything goes to shit and you can't get the food that you normally get from shops because it's convenient and so so on I could still go out tomorrow and forage for food that I know is safe to eat and I know what is poisonous. That's really important. And I think that's what basically more people, I think there's a lot of people doing that, doing foraging, but I think it's certainly, there's scope for a lot more people to get into it, to empower themselves and not basically feel like they're living in fear of what would happen or what happens if we've got no food. Because I know people are stocking up for food shortages, or that have been for food shortages and so on, which is a sensible thing to do. But also, I think as another avenue, you need to be able to think, okay, yeah, if the shit hits the fan, I've still got this avenue that I can go down and I can still get food. And I can, even though maybe some of that food, you wouldn't be, it wouldn't taste as great as some stuff you might normally get in a shop or whatever, which a lot of it does taste lovely, to be honest. But anyway it's still going to keep you alive versus feel like actually I've got nowhere to go, what, what's going to happen, and then end up feeling just really fearful, ill, and possibly dying because you just have nowhere else to go and, you know, no avenue. So I think it's really important to at least empower yourself with some basic knowledge, which includes poisonous plants, obviously. And there's only a few, really, that you would find in your local area, probably. So you're not going to go through like hundreds and hundreds of plants and so on to and think oh my god is this going to be poisonous they're usually pretty clear cut when you look at them so anyway that's wonderful i really appreciate the stuff that you've shared there i think people like yourself are going to become very important people in the not too distant future because those who do have experience of foraging and not killing themselves are going to become a valuable commodity i think particularly if the worst does happen those who've been out there foraging are going to be in demand, aren't they? Because people are going to want to cross-reference with you and say, hey, is this right? Yeah, I think you've done a really, really great job there. Interestingly, I don't know if this is true. And as for everything else that the pair of us have said on this podcast, and there's always on all my podcasts, don't believe anything you hear here. Go and do your own homework. Go and do your mm -hmm. own research. For yeah, sure. definitely. But there was a, a lady and gentleman here that had this house before us. They were two Brits, but they said that and again, I'm not sure that this is true, but they told me that there's no French word for weeds, that it translates more as plants growing in the wrong place, which is interesting given what you've just said, that we call this and that weeds, and actually they're really important medicinal plants. It just made me think of that. I'm going to have to go away and check it now to see if that's true, because I wasn't interested in plants and stuff at the time, so I didn't really care to find out whether that translation thing was true or not, but I'm interested now. I'll have to go and, uh, go and check this and see if I can find an answer. Listen, thank you so much for giving us your time this afternoon. I really, really appreciate it. I've learned loads. I've got a whole page of notes to go and, uh, to go and, <laughs> to go and ponder on. Yeah, I'm very, very interested. Particularly that cleavers stuff, that sounds like it could be really helpful for me with the lymphatics. So thank you mm. for that. No problem. Before I let you go, is there a way that people can get hold of you if they have questions or if there's something they want to check or if they take a photo of something weird and want to get your opinion? Is there a way of contacting you? By email, I suppose, is if you really want to know a bit more or have any particular questions. I mean, some of the stuff we can put, I suppose, below the, well, in the notes, I guess. But yeah, I mean, I wouldn't advise sending me like pictures of things particularly because obviously I may get it wrong and plants kind of look different at different seasons and different environments as well. So I think it's important that people do kind of obviously look into it themselves and if they're not sure, obviously there, there'll be people in their area probably they can ask who will be more knowledgeable, I guess, who could also see the plant in itself, ideally, because I think that's important. So pictures aren't always the best for identifying because you need, as I said, to use all your senses quite often. 
But yeah, I mean, obviously the odd pitch, I could give my opinion, but I wouldn't say trust what I'm saying. So I def- definitely don't want to be responsible for any deaths or anything like that. But I'm I'm joking there because it's unlikely. But... <laughs> I, I can see, yeah. I can foresee a future where there's like a networks of foragers and sort of more senior people that are local to you, you go to and say, hey, what about this? Like a more kind of organized, like guerrilla gardening or something. Kind of, a, yeah. yeah, having a group yeah. of people who are more knowledgeable to help those of us who haven't got a Scooby what they're doing. Anyway, I'll make sure anything that's necessary to contact you is in the show notes in the description. And thank you very much indeed for being with us. And there you go, folks. If you do what we said on this podcast and you eat something and you die, it's your own stupid fault for not doing your homework <laughs> and we accept no responsibility whatsoever. Lesson of the day, ladies and gentlemen, as always, do your own homework. See you next week. Take back your individual sovereignty and that of your family. Visit sarahplumley.substack.com and subscribe for free to stay up to speed with all things education, not indoctrination.